Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $196 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. It's hard to believe another year is almost in the books. 2021 has been eventful, as all periods in equity markets tend to be, but we were able to lower our usage of the word unprecedented as COVID vaccinations became readily available, corporate earnings recovered, and ample liquidity encouraged continued risk-taking by investors. With Omicron reminding us that COVID-19 is not quite in the rearview mirror, and Fed Chair Jay Powell suggesting that such ample liquidity may vanish faster than expected, could investors and consumers be in for a rough ride in 2022, or will the market and the green flashing ClearBridge recession risk dashboard continue to scoff at any wall of worry thrown out there? To help us interpret the tea leaves and identify risks and opportunities in the year ahead, I'm excited to welcome back Scott Glasser, ClearBridge's Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for the ClearBridge Appreciation Strategy, and Josh Jamner, my partner in monitoring the economy and our resident expert on fiscal and economic policy in Washington. Scott, the last time you joined me in the virtual podcast booth six months ago, we were debating whether the value rally would continue or give way to a more balanced market and expecting a pickup in volatility. And based on recent market action, I would say that volatility is back. And Josh, inflation has taken on greater importance with transitory becoming the new buzzword, or should I say old buzzword, in pundit circles. We'll get to hear Scott's perspective on the trajectory of the U.S. equity market, while Josh and I weigh in on the prospects for the economy in today's podcast, ClearBridge, Market, and Macro Outlook for 2022. So Scott, Josh, welcome back to the virtual podcast booth. It's great to have you both here. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be back. And I was sincerely hoping that we'd be able to do this in person. I know that I said that a year ago, but I'm cautiously optimistic that 2023's outlook will be live at the studio. But obviously, you have some issues with the variant popping up here recently. But one of the bigger issues threatening equity markets right now is inflation and its persistence. Coming into the year, consensus for inflation was only at 2%. But with October CPI release coming at 6.2%, something has gone drastically wrong on the inflation front. So Josh, tell us what's happened. Why are we having inflation much higher than what we're expecting coming into the year? So I think that there have been two primary shifts as it relates to inflation over the course of the year. There's probably been a lot more than two, but there's two primary ones we should talk about. The first of those was Delta. The emergence of the Delta variant and the rising case counts really meaningfully shifted the trajectory that the United States economy was on. Chairman Powell talked about this in one of the FOMC um, press conferences a couple of months ago. As it relates to inflation, it, it did a couple of things. It elongated the healing process with regard to supply chain issues because there were a series of shutdowns in Asia, which exacerbated the already fragile supply chain, and it worsened the issue, pushing goods inflation even higher. Beyond just the supply chain, I think it stretched out the time frame for the recovery in the economy as well. And, and ultimately, these things are pretty interrelated. Now, I know it didn't feel anything like March 2020 in terms of the impact to our daily lives, but Delta did appear with the benefit of hindsight to have a pretty meaningful economic impact. And absent that, I think we might have been having a pretty different conversation around inflation and economic trajectory right now. But in all honesty, we can never really know. And the second shift, I think, is the nature of what's driving inflation has shifted over the last couple of months. If we were talking you know, in the first half of the year, 
Most of the upside in inflation was coming from a handful of relatively small categories. Used cars are, I think, a pretty well-known and good example. But for a while, over 50% of inflation was being driven by a small subset of categories that together make up less than 5% of the inflation basket. This really started to shift over the summer, and we've seen a broadening out of inflation, where categories that are, let's say, less impacted by the pandemic are starting to see higher inflation. Now, they aren't picking up to 6%, but if you strip out these sort of pandemic-impacted items, the sort of, you know, everything else that's left when we try to take out what, what's going on with the pandemic, that remaining inflation has started to come up pretty meaningfully. It was a shade over 1% at the end of last year. And if we look at it right now, it's in the kind of low to mid 2% range today. And that's a pretty meaningful difference because if we think eventually these pandemic distortions are going to become less severe, what we're left with has shifted from a level that is probably too low, just over 1% inflation. I think we'd be trying to talk about getting inflation higher, actually. And today we're at something that might be the case for the Fed tightening policy if we're north of 2%. So I think that that is probably the biggest single shift beneath the surface that's caught our attention. It's caught other investors' attention. And I think also it's why you're seeing a shift in tone from the Fed. Now, Jeff, we've talked about this a lot. Um, is inflation going to abate or not in 2022? Do you want to give your thoughts on that and also maybe what the impact of Omicron variant might be? Well, you, you clearly know my thoughts. We had Inflation Fest yesterday where we, we talked about inflation for about an hour and a half, which is probably an hour longer than most people would ever want to talk about inflation. But I do think that it will start to abate pretty aggressively once we get to the second quarter of next year. And it'll come down a little bit higher than what the Fed's average target is 2% is, but I think it'll come in closer into 2.5% on the core measure. You know, obviously there's a number of things that are driving this, but I think as we move into 2022, you're going to see the handoff from goods back into services as you have a more durable reopening and then consumers engage with services on a more persistent basis. Some of this goods demand may remain elevated as consumer preferences certainly have could have changed over the last 20 months. But again, I think that incremental dollar goes back into the services side of the economy and provides a little bit of relief. Also, I think it's important to remember that there's a massive wave of supply that's going to wash on U.S. shores. You're starting to see some of the bottlenecks clear at the ports. And if you're looking at uh, Los Angeles or Long Beach, goods are up about 18 percent versus 2019 levels. And I think a lot of these goods are going to arrive right after the holiday season. And a lot of retailers are going to be forced to cut prices in order to move those goods. And also you have the, the base effects. If uh, a used car and pricing comes down about half of what it's gone up, obviously that's going to be a pretty massive headwind to inflation on the good side. So if you put all of those together, I'm expecting some goods deflation in the later part of 2022 and, and that goods deflation to persist throughout 2023 as well. Also on the commodities front, we're seeing peak inflationary pressure uh, here in the fourth quarter. The US dollars up 6% year to date. Um, that's certainly a headwind to the commodities complex. But until China, which is the biggest consumer of commodities, does a U-turn on policy, you're going to see continued weakness in the commodities complex. And it doesn't appear, at least not at this point, that policymakers are willing to step in aggressively to ease measures in the housing market and on the monetary policy front. And then the last wild card is the labor markets. Um, I've felt for a long time that labor supply is going to be coming into the labor market in a, a very strong way in the fourth quarter. As people have left their federal unemployment benefits and they've expired, they run out of that cash cushion. And we saw really good jobs print in October, and that's going to be a big determinant on where wage growth will be, whether or not we see strong prints throughout the rest of this quarter into the first quarter. So all in all, if you, you put that together, I do think inflationary pressures are going to abate, and Omicron could put a little bit of a wrinkle into that view, 
stretching supply chains. But again, you're going to see lower commodity inflation to help offset that. So I think that's going to be a little bit of a tailwind to higher inflation, but not a big one given the offset from the commodities complex. But obviously, inflation is a lot higher than what it has been in the last cycle. And it's persistently going to be higher this cycle than what we've seen in over 15 years. So Scott, I, I want to turn it over to you. Given this higher inflationary regime that we're likely going to live through for the, the rest of this cycle, what sectors or what areas of the market are best positioned to, to pass on those prices and maintain those margins? And maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, which areas are, are most at risk? In terms of which sectors are best positioned, in general terms, you know, I would say that companies with, and, and this may be obvious, but companies with strong pricing power, but also lower relative labor costs are the companies that are best positioned in kind of an, in an inflationary environment. And that assumes kind of a broader based inflation. So that assumes some labor inflation, that assumes some both goods and services inflation. So that would favor commodity-driven sectors like energy and basic materials. It would be a negative for labor-intensive industries like consumer discretionary. Going back to commodity-driven industries, I do have actually a different opinion than Jeff on this. Jeff believes that, and Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff believes that the, the commodity-driven segments of the economy where you've seen some weakness lately, by the way, commodities were the best performing asset class last year, but where you've seen some weakness lately, a lot of that has to do with China and their inability or, or their desire to not extend credit and therefore limit demand. And I would agree with that. I have, I have no issue with that. My point of differentiation is that you've seen a, depending on the kind of sub-industry, a five to 10-year period of underinvestment or disinvestment in the commodity-driven sector. And while I don't believe we're going back to a 2014 commodity super cycle, uh, I do think the potential exists for a, a mini cycle here on the commodity side. And because of that, I do think that that area of the economy, both from an investment standpoint, but also as a potential longer term source of inflation, that we're going to see commodity prices at a higher level than so-called normal, or certainly what we've seen over the last five to 10 years on a going forward basis. And again, that has more to do with the supply side on the commodity industries than actually the demand side. So specifically, sectors that have done very well traditionally during inflationary periods include financials, include energy and materials that we were just talking about, includes uh, industrials and durables. And the areas that really have done the worst during this period, a lot of it has to do with the inability to pass on those costs to consumers have been the more defensive sectors of the economy, like food, certain retailing areas, like utilities, as an example. I think it's interesting that tech itself kind of comes out in the middle. And the reason tech comes out in the middle, meaning not obviously favored or unfavored by inflation, is that tech companies generally have very high gross margins. And those high gross margins provide a lot of flexibility in terms of absorbing cost pressures. And traditionally, they've also done a good job in terms of raising prices, and there are built-in price escalators in a lot of technology companies over time. So technology actually comes out kind of in the middle and is, is not disadvantaged, but not particularly advantaged as well. So that's the way sectors have played out during past periods of higher than normal inflation. 
Now, Scott, you bring up a, a really good point, right? This debate between growth versus value. Now, it does seem like a lot of the areas of the value complex have have pricing power. Obviously, IT, a lot of areas have some pricing power as well. And I remember six months ago when we were talking about the growth versus value debate, you thought it was going to be much more of a balanced backdrop and you were really favoring quality, which turned out to be a very good call over the last six months. And thinking about growth versus value, Scott, I'm going to start off with you. Do you have any general comments on that space right now? Like, what are you thinking as far as leadership as we move into 2022? So last year, I did. I advocated a more balanced approach, but I did say that I thought that it made sense to lean in a kind of a more cyclical direction after being heavily growth oriented in the prior year. And that worked for about three months. And so the first three or four months of the year, you did. You saw a pretty um, significant cyclical bias to stocks. It made sense. You were going to get your best earnings growth there about a year ago you did have a pretty good imbalance between growth and value. Growth had been dominating, and then you had a near the end of the year into the first quarter, had a pretty significant switch into value. And I would tell you in the last six months, and I, I don't have to tell you, you know this, and listeners know this from owning stocks, you've had a very robust growth environment. In fact, the environment has been so extreme in some cases I was reading yesterday, according to Bloomberg, the MSCI world value is at its lowest point in 50 years versus the growth index. Wow. And so I would argue you've become once again, similar to a year ago, very imbalanced in that growth value mix. And so in spite of the comments of leaning value, which was right for three months and wrong for uh, eight months this past year, I would at this shorter term point be leaning towards the value side again. I think that's where you're going to see the greatest earnings growth. I think that that's also where you have the best valuation support. The valuations are also at extremes in terms of growth versus value. So I think that it makes sense to be leaning more cyclical. And when I say value, cyclical, value is really a combination of more cyclically oriented industries and defensive industries. And in that context, I'm leaning more cyclical than I am defensive. By the way, the same thing I said last year, it doesn't mean that growth doesn't work. It means that I'm advocating a more balanced where growth and value continue to work on a short-term basis, I think over the next three or four months. I do think you will see that value trade be the dominant trade. But on a one-year basis, I think that it makes sense to have a more balanced portfolio in, in that aspect and that growth will continue to do well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, if you think about valuations, obviously rock bottom levels, but value underperformed growth in the large cap space by about 400 basis points alone in November. Obviously, it's concerns about the worsening COVID trends and now Omicron potentially disrupting economic activity. But traditionally, when you think about growth versus value or cyclicals versus defensives, it's really about GDP growth and what's its ultimate level going to be and, and whether or not it's reaccelerating. And I think given this underperformance, it's a unique backdrop because if you look at the Atlanta Fed's now casting tool, which is a real-time measure of what fourth quarter GDP would be given the data releases that we've seen, it's at a very robust 8.6% on a real basis. You add 5% on top of that on inflation, you're at 13% nominal. I mean, that is a huge, huge number. Virtually all the key hard data that we've seen here released recently had beaten consensus expectations. The conference board's leading economic indicator index, better known as the LEIs, 
very healthy 0.9% on a month over month basis. So every economic data point is signaling, at least at this point, that the US economy is putting Delta in the rear view. And although we've seen an increase of cases here that coincide with a colder winter, that economic activity is, is normalizing and we could have very, very robust economic activity and GD earnings numbers as we move through the fourth quarter into the first quarter of next year. And traditionally, we've done some work on this, is when nominal GDP is above 5%, um, that does typically tend to favor value in cyclical companies, value in particular, because of the prevalence of high degrees of operational leverage, a high degree of fixed costs compared to variable costs, and each dollar of incremental revenue really supercharges the earnings potential. So I agree with you, Scott. I think obviously this is a good short-term trade, maybe three to six month trade for value, but cyclicals in this type of environment, as long as the economy can continue this momentum, certainly has some legs and uh, some ability to continue its outperformance as we move through 2022. Now, obviously, one of the things that kind of drive this growth value conversation, cyclical defensive conversation, is inflation break-evens and, and interest rates, the 10-year Treasury in particular. Obviously, 10-year Treasuries have moved down about 20 basis points here over the last week because of fears of Omicron. But Josh, I, I want to turn it over to you to, to talk about the impact of rising rates and, and how it relates to sector leadership, whether or not the 10-year Treasury is moving up or down. Yeah, so this is going to echo a fair amount of what you, Jeff, and Scott both said over the last couple of minutes. If you look at over the first part of the year when interest rates were rising, it was a really good environment for value. And then the 10-year Treasury peaked on, I think it was March 31st, and, and that coincides with when growth leadership reasserted itself. And I think one of the more common pitfalls investor makes when they think about this is they, they look at the impact of rising rates and they just sort of hold everything else constant, right? They say, all oh, it's equal. It's pretty straightforward from a mathematical perspective. A higher discount rate lowers the valuation on stocks. Where they get tripped up is when we move from theory into, into the real world, everything else isn't equal. The question becomes what happens with growth rates? What happens with volatility? What happens with inflation? So on all the things that Jeff was just mentioning. And that's going to matter just as much, if not more in some cases, alongside what happens with interest rates. Now, leaving that aside, I'm going to echo what, what Scott was saying on, on a sector basis. When you think about what is the impact going to be, what sectors are going to do better or worse in a rising interest rate and inflation, inflation expectation environment, it's going to favor the more cyclical sectors at the expense of some of the defensive. So things like banks, materials, energy, some of the more cyclical parts of tech. So Scott was talking about how, how tech's a little bit more balanced. I think if you look at it by industry, things like you know semis and hardware tend to do a little bit better in rising interest rate environments, again, because sometimes it goes along with accelerating growth expectations, but also autos, transports, capital goods, media. These are all typically positive interest rate sensitive groups. And on the flip side, areas like utilities, the household product portion of staples, pharma, food and beverage, real estate, so on, these all tend to be pretty negative, negatively correlated or of negative interest rate sensitivity. So if we look at the benchmarks and how they're kind of put together and translate it into a growth versus value perspective, if we get higher rates, it should favor value relative to growth, given the makeup and where those industries sit. And I think that maybe another important point, one of the most vulnerable things in a rising interest rate and rising inflation environment is really long duration stocks. So things where the cash flows are 10 or 20 years away, where the multiples tend to be pretty stretched. And I think we saw this in the, in the first part of the year. It doesn't mean that the broad market or even the growth benchmarks are going to sell off. If you look at just the first quarter of 2021, the 10-year Treasury jumped just under 100 basis points over the period of about two to three months. And the growth benchmark held up fine. It had a little bit of volatility, but it ended the quarter, I think, slightly positive. Value did really well. And that more speculative portion, the long duration, some of it's in tech, but some of it's elsewhere, sold off pretty hard. So I think that's a pretty good playbook to use going forward for the time being. 
And just to add a point, I think it's interesting. I think that the knee-jerk reaction in technology, particularly with some of the higher-valued stocks, is to sell off immediately with a, with a you know a rate rise, and and that happens across the board. We saw that last year, and and we've seen that historically. The difference is that those companies in the technology sector. That actually come through with the growth, and we've done some work and some analysis on this. The companies that actually come through with the growth, or better than expected growth in many cases, can, in essence, grow through that increase in rates. So there is so that so the backup in rates or the rise in rates doesn't really affect them initially, but on a longer term basis, they're able to grow through it, and it doesn't affect their performance. So that's how we've seen it play out in the market, and we saw it play out that way. More recently, but that's how it's also played out historically. So the notion that that a rise in interest rates is purely negative for technology stocks is is incorrect. It depends on whether, in fact, that growth actually comes through. It's a really good point you're making, Scott. That's played out in the broad market this year. We've had multiple compression. PEs are down in in 2021, and yet we're sitting here. I forget the number off the top of my head. I think 23 percent higher in the S&P 500. So it's not just as simple as saying, you know, what's the impact of, of higher rates to multiples? Now, Scott, I'm going to stick with you for a second here. I know something that's really important in your analysis of the durability of a market move higher is breadth. How is market breadth looking at this point and, and what's the implications of that? So, so thank you for pointing that out. As many of you may know who have heard me before, market breadth is, is very important to me in trying to analyze the health of a market. And I think about it this way. When you look at the market averages and you see that they're up, right? Let's say they're up 20, 25%. It looks on the surface like it's a very healthy market, but you don't really know what's going on underneath the surface. And market breadth to me is the equivalent of like an X-ray on the internals of the market. So somebody could look very healthy, but not be healthy on the inside. A market could look very healthy because the averages are up, but there may be deterioration on the inside of the market that you may not see. So things that I look at are operating company advanced decline lines, the number of companies that are trading above their 30-day moving average, the number of companies making new highs, the number of companies that are within 20% of their old highs, a lot of different statistics that basically point to what percentage of companies are actually participating in this advance. And with the notion or with the idea that the more companies participating in the advance, the healthier it is, the healthier the internals are. Whereas if you have averages that are up high, but you have very narrow participation, okay, that's essentially an unhealthy makeup. And at some point, okay, the market averages will not be able to sustain themselves. Again, the opposite is true. If it's healthy, the market averages continue to go higher. But if the internals are contracting and don't look good, the market averages will not be able to sustain themselves and will lead to either a correction or a bear market at some point. So that's why I like to look at the market internals, the market breadth, as you say. So it's interesting. The S&P made a new high on November 18th. The operating advanced decline lines of the S&P made a new high on November 12th. To give uh, listeners some context for that, you can usually go six to 12 months between a new high and a failure to make a new high in advanced decline lines before it becomes something that becomes worrisome. So it's not an immediate relationship. It means that there's a yellow flag out there, and the longer it goes, 
you know, the more likely it is to create problems for the averages. So that points to actually a pretty healthy market. Now, that's the large caps. When you look at the small caps and you want small and large to both be participating, when you look at small caps, you actually had a pretty good divergence. Small caps up until about a month ago were not participating in this rally to the same extent large caps were. And that would be, in my mind, a negative, a yellow flag. About three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, small caps started to participate in the rally to a much larger degree, and the breadth of the small cap market came up, and it matched the resurgence in the overall market to new highs. And that was a very healthy development. I will tell you, over the last two weeks, small caps are down 8.5%, and that breadth has fallen off a cliff again. So it means that it's something to watch that I continue to watch the small caps, that you need small cap participation for the large caps and the broader markets to continue to go higher. Now, there's certainly something that could be negative for the markets, or a couple of things, I should say, could be negative for the market coming out of Washington, right? We need to fund the government. We need to raise the debt ceiling. We need that reconciliation package to potentially pass. Josh, how do you see all these events playing out, and do any of them pose a sustainable risk to the markets at this point? Ultimately, when we're talking about risk for the market, I think there might be upside in 2022, 2023 and beyond from the Build Back Better bill from an economic and earnings perspective when it passes, because I think ultimately this bill is probably expected to lift GDP by somewhere between 20 and 40 basis points each year over the next decade, potentially. And that should be good for equities and groups that are more levered to it. Things like industrials, materials, parts of consumer that are tied to some of this spending. It's really hard to know what's actually priced in from a market's perspective. It does bring up an important question, right? The risks of a correction. Markets are up 20%, I think 23% year to date, up over 40% over the last 12 months. Scott, any thoughts on the risk of a correction? I mean, we're kind of going through one at the moment. You know, if this isn't the potential catalyst with the variant, what other factors could unleash a, a maybe a larger sell-off? Well, one of the things we've talked about, and I know it's a concern of, of yours as well, is kind of the second half of the year. We've got, and we know from a supply standpoint, that we've had a lot of imbalances, a lot of, a lot of double ordering in the system, a lot of inventory requests because people can't get product, right? And there's shortages everywhere. And so manufacturers, consumers, everyone along that chain has been ordering and ordering and ordering and asking for more and more. And so my worry, I have two worries. One is that I always worry about liquidity. I, at the end of the day, I think liquidity is what causes bull and bear markets. And so we're going from an incredibly easy liquidity standpoint, really since 2008, 2009, to one now where we will taper. We can kind of debate the rate of tapering, but we will taper, and that will remove some liquidity from the system. And at some point, again, depending on the persistence and the level of inflation, we will get into a rate hike cycle. And both of those things will remove liquidity from the system at a time when valuations are pretty high. They're not all-time high. They're all-time high in certain sub-segments of the market. The market doesn't have a valuation problem as a whole. It has a valuation problem in certain sub-segments of the market where you've seen speculation. And so I worry about the removal of liquidity, although it will take a long time, and we're probably looking at kind of second half of the year more seriously into 2023, 
for more of a contraction in that liquidity. That's not a correction. That That's potentially something worse than a correction, depending on the level and, and the rate at which liquidity is drawn from the system. So I don't think that's a near-term concern. But I worry about liquidity being withdrawn at the same time that you've got kind of a flood in goods and services coming in. I think you've called it the bullwhip effect, and, and you can explain that a little better. But basically, you get an inventory surge at the same time you get a normalization of demand and you wind up with an overhang of inventory at the same time, maybe later in the year, where liquidity starts to tighten a little bit. So that's a worry of mine longer term. And, and that would be a, you know, a more difficult environment, I think, for equities and would certainly cause a correction. Yeah, I would agree. Corrections are notoriously difficult to forecast. If you think about since 1946, on average, you've had a 5% pullback 1.1 times per year, a 10% or greater pullback 0.4 times per year, and a bear market 0.16 times a year. But they've been getting a lot more frequent as we've obviously have more people being able to participate in the market in the last couple of decades. But I think there's a viewpoint that just because we've had this great run in the markets that were overdue for a correction, but if you look at since 1900, every time that you've had uh, market returns of 20% or greater in the prior year, you've actually averaged better than 11% in that following year. So generally speaking, strength begets more strength when it comes to equity markets. But yeah, I think all of the different variables that could cause some sort of correction are some of the same ones that I fear, obviously disruptions from another variant. I'm more concerned with the Chinese slowdown at this point. I think that they clearly are running the risk of having a policy mistake by tightening too much in the housing sector. I also am concerned about the bullwhip effect, which you mentioned, the potential for an inventory re recession as things clear up uh, and we get some equilibrium on goods demand and supply in the back half of next year. But again, I, the biggest thing that drives markets is earnings and based on third quarter earnings results and forward guidance, I mean, you continue to see a very strong surprise of around eight to 9% this quarter, which is about two and a half times the long-term average, but forward guidance uh, and earnings revisions moved higher in Q4 against expectations for some margin pressure and some issues relating to higher inflation, labor shortages, and obviously the supply chain disruptions that we've seen. So again, it's hard to handicap a correction, as everybody knows, but uh, I think the path of least resistance for the market, at least near term, is, is higher from here. Now, I, I know we've gone close to 30 minutes here, but I, I just wanted to get maybe any concluding thoughts from, from each of you, key takeaways, if you will, from this conversation and what to look out for in 2022. So Josh, can I start with you on that? Yeah, from an economic perspective, obviously seeing the progress out of DC is one of them. Also, as you mentioned, Jeff, I think, are we going to see a, a handoff from goods back towards services and what the impact of that is in inflation, where growth ultimately settles out as we move through the first half and into the second half of next year? I think, I don't want to speak for both of you, but I think all of us sort of have a view that it's going to be a tale of two halves as we move into, into 2022. And so what are the data points as we move into January, February, March? And are we starting to see signs of things playing out like we expect? Are we seeing that, that goods to services handoff is probably the, the one that I'll be watching most closely. Scott? From a market perspective, I think it's, it's stay the course. I've advocated a balanced approach to the markets, whether it be growth versus value. I've told you what I'm watching in terms of the health of the market, which is small caps. We've discussed a little bit what the worries are. You know, I have a little bit more worry on inflation than the two of you, and we've discussed that in the past. 
but maybe tapering in a more aggressive way allows the Fed to push off raising rates a little bit longer, which would be healthy for the market, and then would would kind of make me feel better about those overall liquidity concerns. So I see nothing in the makeup of the market right now, which would make me fearful. And I continue to watch all, all the things that we've talked about. Yeah, my, my key takeaway is I think the U.S. economy is much more resilient next year than what we've seen over the last two years. Learn to live with the virus. The strength of the consumer above trend consumption is certainly going to be there. Compensation being a key driver to that. Very strong labor markets. Business investment is going to be sustained. And I think we're going to see the most sustained CapEx cycle that we've experienced since the 1990s. And also inventory rebuilding is going to be a nice tailwind to GDP as well. So I think that goes a long way to supporting equity market valuations and the continued earnings potential for U.S. companies. And again, retail participation in equity markets over the last year has been greater than the previous 25 years combined as far as inflows are concerned. And there's still over a trillion dollars of cash sitting in money market funds right now. So I do think given that type of robust environment, buybacks authorizations are at record levels at over a trillion dollars. Again, I think the path of least resistance for the markets are going to be higher, even though we may see a little bit more of a choppier environment given the lack of liquidity that Scott and also Josh has pointed out. Before we wrap up, though, I, I need to do this. Uh, I do this uh, every year with the Outlook, which is the lightning round, our stock market and macro predictions, where we look into the magic eight ball and we predict a couple of things that are going to happen in 2022. So, Scott, Josh, are you willing to engage in the lightning round really quick? Absolutely. My favorite part. <laughs> okay. Without further ado, best sector for the S&P 500 in 2022. I'll start with you, Scott. Energy. I'm going to go with energy also. Oh, wow. Well, I want to uh, change mine now. <laughs> uh, well, you guys are really not going to like my answer because I'm going with energy also. <laughs> Overall market return historically has been 9% on a price return basis since World War II. Over or under 9% price basis, 2022. Josh, I'll start with you. I'll, I'll take the over. I'll take the under. And my under comment is based on end of the year concerns about not only tapering, but just um, liquidity as a whole. I actually looked up Magic 8-Ball answers prior to this, and I'm going to say reply hazy, but I'm going to take the <laughs> uh, the under. I do actually share the same concern that it will be a good first half of 2022. But again, that mid-cycle slowdown is going to be coming apparent when we get to the end of the year. Last but not least, the most important topic we've talked about, inflation. Right now, consensus has core PCE at 2.5%, uh, fourth quarter over fourth quarter. Over under. Um, Scott, I'll go with you first. I'm gonna say over. I'll take the over as well. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go against the grain here. I'm gonna take the under on that. Not by a lot, but I, I think it could undershoot to the downside. All right, Scott Josh, I really appreciate you jumping on the line here and discuss your views for the upcoming year. I'm personally hoping that it's a year similar to 2021 with only a minor handful of volatile periods, but again, time will tell. But again, both of you, thank you very much for your invaluable perspective. I appreciate you being on here. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. And I want to thank everyone for taking the time out of your busy schedules to listen in. We at ClearBridge hope that you have a safe and happy holiday season and New Year's. And we hope you'll continue to join us in 2022. And as always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. 
Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of December 1st, 2021, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.